Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the Brit Pack is back. Welcome to episode number eight. It is Monday, September 12th, 2016. Simon Head and Shamakar Sandu back again to look at the big stories in the world of mixed martial arts. And on this week's show, we take a look back at UFC 203 in Cleveland, Ohio, as Steve Miocic retained his UFC heavyweight title after a crazy one-round battle with Alistair Overeem. We also take a look back at the long-awaited debut of former WWE superstar CM Punk, who found out just how tough life can be inside that UFC octagon. Even after nearly two years of training at a top gym, he lasted mere seconds against Mickey Gall. We'll take a look ahead to this weekend's UFC Fight Night event in Hidalgo, Texas, as lightweight contenders Dustin Poirier and Michael Johnson look to push themselves forward. We'll bring you our picks for that main event bout. And we've been inundated with questions from you, the listeners, this week. And we'll answer the very best ones right here on this week's show. My name's Simon Head, MMA reporter for The Sun here in the UK. And joining me via Skype is my podcasting partner in crime, Mr. Shamatkar Sandu, who you can find on MMA Junkie, Flow Combat and Fighters Only. But more importantly than all of that, you can find him every week right here as one half of the Brit Pack. Sandu, how's it going, buddy? I'm not too bad, Si. I've had a, a pretty good weekend. And by that, I mean before a UFC 203 kicked off, I actually got about three or four hours uh, kip, which isn't normally the case. I try and get some sleep before uh, a fight night because otherwise, you know, we're up until five, six in the morning and perhaps... You know, listeners, listeners of ours, you know, across the UK, uh, can can really relate to that. That's the that's part and parcel of the gig, being a fan of the sport and watching it on a weekly basis. But that for me was a big victory. So I had to get three, four hours sleep, and it meant that I didn't have to do too much catching up um, last night and and hopefully tonight. So that was good. And I also got verified on Twitter, so I finally caught up to the likes of yourself and many others. I'm officially I got I got the blue tick, the check mark on Twitter. So now. Everyone knows that I am who I say I am. So that was a nice little uh, tick of the box, no pun intended. Uh, but, but no, apart from that, I'm doing well, mate. Looking forward to kind of speaking all things mixed martial arts. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about this week. We certainly do. And uh, on, on the topic of uh, managing to get sleep before the event, I always try and do that. And without fail, I never get it done. I never get it done. I, I always end up getting caught up doing something else. Or there's something on early in the evening I end up watching. Or, you know, it could be anything. I mean, this weekend it was the Kell Brook fight. Uh, Kell Brook versus Golovkin. Uh, fantastic fight. Kell Brook did really well in that fight, actually, until uh, until he sustained a, a broken orbital and ended up his uh, his, his corner saved him. But, um, yeah, so I ended up staying up. I did about 27 hours straight. And, predictably, I was an absolute mess by Sunday afternoon. So I really need to sort that out. I'll be really interested to know, actually... Uh, of our of our British listeners out there, um, how do you guys actually do this? How do you consume uh, live UFC events? Are you one of these hardcore nutcases who stays up all the way through the night, or are you a bit more sensible um, and get sleeping beforehand, or do you avoid the spoilers, wake up early Sunday morning and watch the fights? Then it's not easy being a UK MMA fan when there's big big events the other side of the planet. So. Uh, Chuck us a tweet at the Brit Pack MMA. Let us know um, how you watch these big live UFC events. I'd be really interested to know. Um, and as you say, Sandu, we had some, you know, we, we've got loads to talk about this week. Let's kick it right off with UFC 203 and that main event over there in Cleveland, Ohio. 
Ohio's own Stipe Miocic <laughs> getting that big knockout against Alistair Overeem. I flip-flopped. Um, I changed my pick really late. I was going to go with Stipe. I've been saying he's the guy to beat for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, I changed my pick with about three days to go and uh, put the curse on Alistair Overeem, who nearly <laughs> did exactly what I predicted. I said he'd knock him down. I said he'd get a submission. Um, but he didn't quite finish it off, did he? And uh, Stipe got out of that guillotine choke and went on to knock out the ream and uh, retain that UFC heavyweight title. Yeah, I actually saw you uh, flip-flop a little bit. After our kind of talk last week, I thought you were dead set on sticking with Miocic, but then I saw you kind of, you know, slightly kind of move towards Overeem. And nothing fight week really kind of gave me the sense uh, that I would change my pick with Overeem. And I was literally just about to type, here we go, we've got a fourth European UFC champion, how times have changed. As soon as he clipped Miocic, um, I thought it was going to be a wrap. And I, and I think it's at critical times in a fight which kind of separate, not the boys from the men, that's, that's the wrong analogy here, but from the, 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 the champions to the pretenders to the throne. Maybe that's a better way of phrasing it because Overeem clipped him, Si. Miocic went down and then he had a decision to make. And in hindsight, being what it is, I think you'll regret not swarming him, getting on top of him and putting in some ground and pound, which I think would have given him a much better chance to end the fight there and then. But like you said, he went in for the guillotine choke. He never really had it all the way in, cinched in, and eventually Miocic was able to escape. And then obviously we saw the fight play out as it, as it did. And, uh, and Miocic, you know, got the job done in the end, you know, by, by knockout. Um, but it was a fantastic kind of almost a crescendo to the night, especially for Miocic being in Cleveland. You know, it, it was immensely loud. You know, I know some of our, you know, reporter friends who were on the scene there compared it to the Dublin show, um, which, you know, rang higher on the decibel meter. Um, but it was, I think it was a nice moment uh, for, for Stipe, uh, getting that opportunity to fight in his hometown and getting the big win. Um, so that was, that was really nice to see. Um, but what did you make of... Uh, the whole scenario side between uh, Joe Rogan and Overeem, that seems to be another big hot talking point coming out of the fight, where essentially Overeem had said that he had um, you know, felt a tap. Joe Rogan threw it to the replay, which clearly didn't show any tap. And then there was some obviously controversy coming out with Joe Rogan, not only the broadcast, but on social media, basically saying that he's spoken to the UFC and he's kind of advised them and said he doesn't feel as though he should be, or the UFC or anyone should be interviewing a fighter immediately after a loss like that, after he's just been concussed, essentially, uh, by a knockout. What did you make of that whole scenario? Yeah, it was it was a bizarre one. I mean, the thing the thing to bear in mind with all this, Reem was out cold. He got he got knocked out cold by Stipe, and then he came to, and I can only imagine what happens to you when you lose a fight like that, and you're you know you're trying to piece everything together in your mind. You know, you're looking for reasons. You're looking for reasons why you lost, and and uh, unfortunately for Overeem, um, they threw straight to the truck and and, and put the uh, put the replay up on the screen, which in hindsight was wasn't wasn't the wasn't the best scenario for for Alistair, who obviously got hung out to dry a little bit by all that. And it, you know, the longer it went on, because obviously they went for a second a second angle, and it, it just got worse. It was all very awkward. Um, and um, I, I do totally agree with what Joe Rogan said. If you've been knocked out, you shouldn't be conducting interviews afterwards because 
let's face it, you're in no position uh, to give a real opinion of what happened because you've just been concussed enough to be uh, to be separated from your senses. So, you know, really there shouldn't be that. You know, those guys shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be put in front of a microphone at that point. So I wouldn't hold anything against uh, Alistair for what he said. I don't think he was trying to uh, belittle Stipe's win. I just think that it was probably a case of a concussed fighter desperately looking for a looking for a, a reason why he might have lost. And uh, you know, he he said what he said. Uh, I'm sure looking back at it now, he's probably feeling a little awkward about the whole situation himself. Um, and it'd be interesting to see where Alistair Overeem goes from here because this 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 was his big his big moment and uh, he was so close to getting it done and I do completely agree with you that um, and obviously hindsight's twenty twenty isn't it but yeah I, I I tend to agree with you that if he'd have just been a if he'd have just made that split second decision the other way and gone for ground and pound I tend to agree with you I think he may well have got that fight finished um, by going for the by going for the choke. Um, Stipe wasn't taking any more any more blows to the head, um, and I think it probably wouldn't have taken a, you know too too many more for, uh, for ref Mark Goddard to have stepped in and finished that fight because clearly you know that that big straight left from Alistair did the job and knocked him flat and um, yeah rather than rather than lock up the guillotine which can be a tricky submission to finish at the best of times um, it's not a, it's not a painful submission as such it's not like an arm bar where you're, you're you know you're dealing with the pain. Um, it's basically it's just a it's just a blood choke. So the worst thing that's going to happen to you in those sort of situations is you you know you uh, you pass out. So as a fighter, you can potentially uh, fight through those a lot a lot more easily than say a well applied arm bar or something like that. So that's an interesting angle to look at as well. Um, so it was one of those that unless you get it on really really good and you're prepared to choke the guy unconscious. Sometimes, you know, I, I, most fight cards, you see people go for a guillotine and not finish it um, just because it's such a tough submission to finish at the very highest level. You've got to get it on uh, absolutely perfectly and you've got to get it locked up really tight uh, so the guy literally can't escape and you need enough time in the round. So, um, yeah, didn't go over him's way. Miocic's got the knockout. The crowd went nuts. Um, yeah, people comparing it to Dublin, which you wouldn't have thought People would be comparing Cleveland to Dublin going into that weekend. But there we have it. Um, Jessica Eyes' walkout, I thought, was amazing. It sounded like a main event when she was walking out. It was great. Unfortunately for her, she didn't get the performance that she was hoping for as she lost to Betch Cahaya. Um, but, uh, but yeah, obviously, Stipe was the man they were all talking about. Let's quickly talk about that main event. Uh, sorry, the uh, co-main event, Sandu. Um, yeah. One of the more bizarre fights we've seen in the UFC heavyweight division and. They do sometimes throw up a few weird ones, but Fabrizio Vadum, I think, was really looking for a, a, a really decisive performance against Travis Brown and came flying out the blocks with this, this, this flying push kick to the head, uh, which he's done before, actually. He did it in pride. Um, and, uh, you know, he didn't. He obviously didn't get the finish from that. And then the fight just sort of deteriorated and it kind of just sort of petered out to a unanimous decision. I mean, what did you make of that contest? It was a bit of a weird one. Yeah, it had uh, pretty much everything but the kitchen sink in that fight. So you, you, like you mentioned it, Sai, he come up with his flying kick, um, started off the fight with a bang, so to speak, and uh, I thought that was going to rock Travis Brown to the point where Matt, perhaps, uh, Vadum could follow up uh, with some more strikes and finish it there and then, but uh, Brown kind of st steadied the ship, so to speak, and uh, and from there, 
I mean, in the first round, you had a moment where uh, Brown injured his hand, and later we find out it ended up being a broken finger. And the referee, Gary Copeland, who, by the way, looks like a, a five-foot version of Brock Lesnar and wears uh, his T-shirts, maybe three or four sizes too small, um, Gary Copeland calls a timeout, sir. He calls a timeout, which is absolutely, you know, unforgivable. Like, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, if the, if the fighter's injured and, you know, he's calling a timeout or he's turned his back to his opponent, that's it. TKO, you lose the fight. But they, they call a stop to the action. They call the doctors in. Um, they have a kind of word with Travis Brown. They kind of look at his hand. And bizarrely, they, they allow the, the fight to continue. And then... The, the fight plays out, you know, as it does. You know, Brown somehow, I don't know how, ends up uh, continuing to carry on fighting, even though he's got um, a, a bone sticking out of, out of his skin. Then, throughout the fight, as uh, each round ended, you've got Brown going back to his corner, and you've got Edmund Tarverdian, <laughs> who was screaming at the top of his lungs, at the top of his voice, at one point losing his voice, just screaming all sorts of expletives, um, and, I, and I don't know how or why he was doing that and what kind of motivation or strategy or help he was actually giving Brown by acting the way he did in between those rounds. The fight ends. The, the, uh, the, Vadum gets the unanimous decision. And then there's an altercation between him and Tavadian where apparently you know, Tavadian, you know says something to Vadum about his mother. And again, I'm sure there were some expletives involved there. And then Vadum kicks him. He, he gives him a bit of a push kick. And then all hell breaks loose. And then the commission come in and they kind of take Tarverdian and Brown and that whole camp out of the, uh, out of the octagon. And then later in the post-fight press conference and post-fight interviews, we find out that uh, two hours before the fight, Vadum had actually taken a cortisone shot because three weeks ago he had broken or fractured his foot which just makes his performance and that flying kick at the, at the start um, even more uh, bizarre because how the hell did he even get through 15 minutes uh, where he did throw a few kicks? Um, it was, I mean, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. So it was just absolutely crazy. Um, there's so many talking points and we can record a whole show just based on that. But I do think that had it been perhaps maybe a John Kavanagh, maybe a Faraz Zahabi that Vadum had kicked, then I think the MMA community would have been, you know, up in arms. But I think because it was Edmund Tarverdian, he's not, I suppose, the most well-liked figure in the sport, that I think a lot of people maybe gave him the pass and maybe that's why it's not too much of a, a hot topic or, you know, Vadum's not getting too much heat for it. Um, but, I mean, like I said, si, there's so much crazy stuff went on in that fight. I mean, ultimately, Vadum came out the, the winner. It's not a performance or a victory that I feel as though is going to secure him a title shot, even though he thinks he deserves it next. Um, but it's, a, it's another win nonetheless. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, what Vadum did is is pretty unforgivable. You can't you can't be doing stuff like that in the octagon. It's, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, he's a former heavyweight world champion. He's one of the most experienced guys in the UFC heavyweight division. And he completely lost the plot. Um, it'd be very interesting to see if he gets any any punishment either from the UFC or from the uh, the Ohio State Commission. Um, but you sh- you can't be going around doing that. Whether it's whether it's a crackpot coach like Edmund Tarverdian or whether it's 
you know, whether it's John Kavanagh or, or Greg Jackson or whoever it is, you can't be behaving like that. It's nuts. Um, as for Edmund himself, I mean, he's a walking, talking soap opera, isn't he? It's just he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, everything he does, people are obviously fixated on what he does because he's one of the sport's great eccentrics. Um, he obviously got his notoriety through uh, being in Ronda Rousey's corner. Um, mm. It's noticeable, in my opinion, that Travis Brown looks an absolute shadow of the guy who ripped through the heavyweight division and got to the point where he was one fight away from a title shot. He doesn't look like the same guy anymore. You know, mm. he, 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 he was an absolute wrecking machine in that heavyweight division. I remember that, that flying Superman punch knockout of um, Stefan Struve. Um, an absolute standout moment. His, his finish of Alistair Overeem. Overeem absolutely ruined him to the body. And then he turned, he, he, he basically soaked up everything that he had, then turned around, uh, hit him with a couple of body uh, straight body kicks, then moved one to the chin, knocked out over him. One of the most incredible comeback wins uh, we've seen in recent years in the UFC heavyweight division. But we, he just, he looks a completely different animal right now. Um, and it is, it is hard not to question uh, Tarverdian's credibility. Just look at the results and look at, look at the success of his fighters post Ronda Rousey Holly Holm so you know since that fight we haven't really seen too much too much of positive uh, positive results from him so you know it'd be interesting to see where he goes whether Travis Brown looks to stay um, with uh, with the Glendale Fighting Club I mean obviously he's in a relationship with Ronda so maybe that has something to do with it as well but yeah it's a it's it's a weird one but on on Vadum you can't go around doing stuff like that that's ridiculous um We'll move on from that to uh, another another rather bizarre event, um, <laughs> which is the uh, the welterweight clash between Mickey Gall and uh, Mr. Phil Brooks, better known to the wider world as CM Punk. And uh, it's the fight that a lot of people were waiting for, for one of two reasons. Either they wanted to see um, see him get in there and see see how he got on, or, and, and I would count an awful lot of people within the MMA media in this latter category, they're waiting for him to go in there and get his backside handed to him. And that's pretty much what happened. He walked straight up to Mickey Gall, uh, threw or attempted to throw some sort of right hand. I watched it on replay and it was it, it barely qualified as a punch. It was almost like he was push it was almost like he was doing the shot put. He was almost pushing his hand out there. But Gall had already shot underneath, took him down, and uh, the next time CM Punk stood up, the fight was over. So it was it was as convincing, um, it reminded me in, in, in some ways. You remember when James Tony fought Randy Couture, and Randy Couture just took him down, worked yeah. his position, and finished him. It had it had shades of that about it, but obviously, Randy Couture is a very seasoned fighter. You know, he, I think he was forty seven years of age when he, or, or forty six years of age when he fought uh, James Tony. A lot of fights under his belt. Two weight world champion. This is two and zero, Mickey Gall, um, and uh, basically did the same job on on CM Punk. Um, the thing that stood out to me was, and I, I wrote about it on the Sun website today. Um, I did a little opinion piece. He came into this 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 event with not one game plan, but two uh, two game plans. One was to beat CM Punk and how he would go about that. The second game plan was what he would do when he got the mic. And boy, did he make that mic time count! He he did the perfect call out by calling out Sage Northcutt. That is the perfect possible matchup for him. Um, what did you make of that fight first off, if you can call it a fight? And uh, what did you make of Mickey Gall uh, in his post-fight comments? And also CM Punk after the fight. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I tweeted about this just, just prior to the fight kicking off. I was, it's very rare, if if ever at all, that I'm as conflicted um, as I was uh, trying to be a you know a completely down the middle, unbiased journalist, just calling the action as I see, and also emotionally reacting to the fight as I'm watching it on TV. Um, uh, you know, I've made no secret about it. You know, I'm a, a lifelong pro wrestling fan. I was a, a pro wrestling fan way before I was an MMA fan. And, and a part of the reason I became a fan of mixed martial arts was because of pro wrestling. Um, and, you know, I've been a, a CM Punk pro wrestler fan for a long, long time. I've been following his career for ages. Uh, I've been to plenty of, you know, Raws and, and WrestleManias and all sorts of events, you know, largely part of especially you know over the last kind of decade uh due to him he's been the, the bright shining star of uh, of of a lackluster period for the wwe um over the last decade now things have changed there in the last kind of couple of years um with a lot of you know you know young uh, talent finally being given the push but to see him make the walk it's been a few years since cult of personality hit i'm not gonna lie side simon I popped, I popped pretty hard when I heard that that song hit, and, and it was pretty cool to see him, you know, make that walk to the octagon. Um, but for the life of me, Simon, I just can't understand why he tried to bum rush Mickey Gall uh, and just kind of throw a, a weird punch as he's stepping forward. I thought, you know, take your time, you know, give it thirty seconds, forty-five seconds, give it a minute, you know, maybe bounce around the octagon for a bit, figure out your range, settle into the fight a little bit. Um, you know, feel out goal, but it was just completely. Uh, well, I, I want to call it an amateur mistake. He is an amateur, really, isn't he? This is his first, his first professional fight. Um, he never even got a chance to you know, showcase any of the the hard work he's put in over the last eighteen months to two years. Showcase any of the skill set that he's that he's gained and picked up and learned while you know during his time at Rufus Sport. He didn't give a good account of himself. Um, and he's only got himself to blame it. Again, we talked about it earlier on at the very top level with decision making. Even at the bottom level, you know, you've got to just make the the basic um, right decisions. And he made just uh, a schoolboy error, just trying to rush Mickey Gall, who is you know very very good um, with his ground game. You know, that's the one part of the game I think pretty much everyone knew. You know, he's got a really good ground game. He's he's you know good at his jujitsu, and like you said, he took him down. And uh, and he got the job done. And and I, I thought he'd do it. I think many thought he would do it. And and I completely agree with you, Simon. The absolute perfect call out. What we've got now with him calling out Sage Northcutt is. And, and again, I tweeted this about Gaul, and I got a, a, a little bit of flack about it, but not too much. I thought here's a rookie who is well prepared. He, he was fighting on the regional circuit. There was an opportunity to fight for Dana White. What does he do? He calls out CM Punk. Next thing you know, he's got a UFC contract. He's fighting on a pay-per-view main card, right? What does he do in this moment? He calls out Sage Northcutt. Fantastic. Both guys with a background coming off the show looking for a fight, which has been really the, the UFC's kind of big hit show this year. We talked about it last week, Sai, with, with the Ultimate Fighter, perhaps you know, definitely not being what it used to be. But in saying that, the UFC have created a show in, in looking for a fight, that has generated, you know, uh, fighters that have, uh, you know, got peak people's interest, right, at, at a minimum. But also, they've created genuine stars and draws um, in, you know, now Mickey Gall and prior to him, Sage Northcutt. I think it's a great fight. I sent a tweet to Eric Winter, who's the the head of Fight Pass, 
just kind of throwing it out there. I said, hey, Eric, how about Mickey Gold, Sage Northcutt as the Fight Pass featured prelim for UFC 205 in New York? And uh, I, I hope to make it. I know I saw um, an interview post-fight with Megan O'Leary where Dana White had said that uh, following the call-out, Sage Northcutt, his management or his people, had kind of reached out to Dana White um, saying that they're interested in the fight. What weight they do it at will be interesting. Obviously, Mickey Gall fights at 170. Um, Sage Northcutt fights at 155. I don't know if they do it at one weight or another, or if it's just a, a catch weight, just to get the fight put together. Uh, but 100%, I completely agree with you, side. It was the right call to make. Now, with CM Punk, it's very interesting to see what happens next. In his post-fight uh, press conference, he said he wants to fight against Simon. Um, Dana White said that perhaps his next fight shouldn't be in the UFC. Now, this might cause a bit of an issue. I, I guess the UFC will wait to find out what the pay-per-view numbers are like. But if they cut him, Sai, surely Bellator will be knocking on his door, right? Yeah. <laughs> of course they will. Of course they will. But um, I think I think if uh, if the UFC were going to keep him around, there's there's one guy who they could who they could put him in with, uh, and that's Mike Jackson. They could, they could get, cool. they, could, cool. they, yeah. could, they could get Mike Jackson. Um, Mickey Gould polished him off pretty quickly as well. Uh, the thing with Mike Jackson, he sold the hell out of his fight with uh, with Mickey Gould. Did a really good job. Um, was was great fun promotionally. Um, and uh, but let's be honest here, CM Punk talent wise has no business being anywhere near the UFC octagon. Now he, he was given he was given this opportunity, and he himself admitted that he was looking to go into MMA at a low level and learn his trade, but was offered this opportunity and took it. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a fighter on the planet who wouldn't have taken that opportunity. Now, of course have, not. You can't blame him. He just got uh, before the show started today. Uh, the Ohio State Athletic Commission released the numbers. Simon, he made half a million dollars. Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's it is the biggest no-brainer going now. Having been in there and done it, and basically come up incredibly short um, in terms of in terms of talent and performance in the octagon, the big decision now is what do I do next? If I, I, I think I think what he probably should do is drop down and maybe go fight for someone someone like Legacy or RFA. Get put in there with some some young prospects who are just making their way in the game, and and yeah. and, and do that. Um, be on a platform that is still on Fight Pass. That would probably make the most sense. Uh, work with the UFC to work with one of their subsidiary promotional partners on Fight Pass, so that they still get the benefit of CM Punk um, fighting on a UFC platform. So that he can still be on UFC Fight Pass. But it's just he, he'll do it on one of the one of the regional shows, and I think that makes the most sense. It continues his story, it allows him to continue his career. That what well, say continue his career, continue to progress his new his new career that he wants to make in MMA. Um, but do it at a more appropriate level for his abilities. This this for me was a one shot deal. Um, I don't have any issue with the fact that it happened um, because of the way it happened, and I think. The biggest thing that comes out of this, it builds Mickey Gall. And I think that is probably the biggest takeaway out of all of this, is the fact that what we have here is a young, articulate, smart fighter who is very, very young in his career, um, 
but he shows that he gets it. He understands what's going on. He's got he's got some uh, he's got some credentials behind him in terms of, you know, he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, he's still developing his game, um, and he needs to now take fights that are commensurate to his talent level. And that's why calling out Sage Northcutt was absolutely the perfect thing to do. I think they'll make that fight at 170. Sage has had a fight or two at 170. Um, he's a big 55er anyway. Uh, and we are beginning to see fighters start to move towards fighting at their more natural weight. I don't think Sage will have any issue at all taking that fight at 170. And I think it's the perfect fight for the pair of them. I think, um, I think Sage has kind of found his level a little bit. Uh, now he needs to find a dance partner that's going to bring the best out of him. And I think you've got this this interesting clash of personalities. They've both come through the same route, but personality-wise, they couldn't be any different. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that fight, and I really do hope that they make it uh, for 205 in New York. Or maybe even the uh, the Vegas show in uh, in December, on December the 30th. One of those two shows. And I completely agree with you, and I, I, I wrote about it as well and said exactly the same as you. That is the perfect fight to be a, a Fight Pass prelim. They were made on UFC Fight Pass. They've come through the system, if you like, via UFC Fight Pass. And now here they are. The two the two biggest names to come up through that show so far, head-to-head, as the featured Fight Pass prelim uh, on a huge blockbuster show like UFC 205. It makes perfect sense. That's what I would do. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and, just, uh, and I completely agree with the, your point about the personalities. What you've got here is you've got uh, a clean cut, um, blonde hair, blue eye boy next door in 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 Sage Northcut, uh, who's probably every I don't know, fifteen, sixteen year old girl's kind of pin up poster boy band lookalike type of guy, versus a New Jersey dark haired, foul mouthed uh, Mickey Gall who was just effing and blinding in his post fight interview and and, and 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 if they put the fight together, so I really can't wait until these guys are you know starting to do the, the pre-fight interviews and they start to face off and there's a press conference. Um, but I really like Mickey Gold. I, I like everything he's done so far with all of the opportunities he's been given. Um, I, I like the fact that he's got something prepared to say uh, in, 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 in case he wins a fight, which is great because like Chael Sonnen always said, um, you know, you've got to always be thinking ahead. You know, Sonnen was the master at it. He'd, he'd win a fight. And then he'd have something ready to set up the next fight. You've always got to keep people interested in what you're going to do next. And Mickey Gall's definitely doing that. In the limited amount of uh, you know action we've seen him in, although maybe the competition has been up to his level, um, he's proven to be um, a, as clinical as clinical as he can be. And at the end of the day, you can only kind of you know beat you know whoever's in front of you. Um, so I think you know with this whole kind of CM Punk uh, experiment, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, whatever happens with CM Punk, at least the UFC during the process had been able to create a star. Um, if you want to maybe perhaps call him a star, maybe he's not a, a star yet, but he's certainly on his way uh, in Mickey Gall, where he's got name value now. People know who he is. There's genuine interest in him. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to seeing his career develop in, in front of our very eyes uh, for the biggest promotion in the world. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And, and, uh, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see if they make that fight. And I wonder, I just wonder, is Mickey Gall the guy who finally breaks this happy-go-lucky facade of Sage Northcutt, who try as the media might, you know, we've asked him repeatedly, "What pisses you off, Sage? Something must annoy <laughs> you." 
you know, even if you stub your toe going in, you know, going to your house, <laughs> or you shut your finger in the door, something, something must annoy you. And he's given us nothing back. He's like, no, I'm, I'm happy with everything. Everything's great. Everything's awesome. Maybe it needs another young, a young prospect to get in his face and really, really push his buttons just to see. You know, let's see if that if that Sage Northcutt mask slips at all during the build-up. I, I, I'm fascinated by you know I'm, I'm sort of thinking about the the, uh, the clashing personalities between the two. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to the fight, and I haven't even made it yet. So uh, fingers crossed they get it done. As you say, Dana says they're going to get it done. So it's just a case of when that fight takes place. But 205 would make the most sense to me. Uh, get it done for Madison Square Garden. That would be absolutely perfect. Very, very quickly, we'll just run through a couple of the, the other key results on, on that fight. Sure. Jimmy Rivera putting in uh, a very controlled, very disciplined performance to defeat Uriah Faber. Without doubt, the biggest win of his UFC career. Um, extended that ridiculous unbeaten run of his and uh, he's probably one or two fights away from being discussed as a legitimate threat for that bantamweight championship. Um, Jessica Andrade really putting the hurting on Joanne Calderwood. She didn't even give her the chance to settle. Uh, took her down, submitted her inside a round. Really disappointing for Jojo. I can't, to be honest, 125-pound division cannot come quickly enough for Joanne Calderwood. I think that's a perfect fit. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, actually, we've got some questions on both the Rivera-Faber fight and the Andrade-Calderwood fight. So without going into too much detail on, on both of them, um, I, I agree with you, Simon. Um, I think uh, Calderwood, um, you know, ideal her weight class is 125. Um, but in the current weight division that she's fighting in, in straw weight, um, it, it is what it is. You know, Calderwood does need to work on her ground game. She needs to work on her wrestling. Uh, that's been no secret. She comes from a, a Muay Thai striking background, so that was always going to be her strongest point. Um, and she's taken the, the loss on the chin, you know, looking at and reading her social media. She's going to go back to the gym, start working on what, you know, the, the improvements they need to work on. Um, and, and who knows, maybe the Belfast card uh, might be a good shout if she wants to try and get one more fight uh, to round out the year. Um, it'll give her a chance to perhaps spend a little bit more time maybe at home. Uh, it wouldn't be too much of a struggle or too far for some of the local fans in Scotland and friends and family to, to hop across the pond and make it to Belfast. Um, and as for, for Rivera, I mean, I mean, wow. I mean, this guy is legitimately, I mean, he wasn't ranked in the top 10, which is bizarre. And I guess it just shows the strength of the bantamweight division in 2016 heading into this fight. Um, but I'm sure he'll skyrocket into that uh, uh, top 10 uh, following this fight for sure. It's the first time Faber's uh, suffered back-to-back losses and, you know, he's, he's, entry, he's, he's well into his late 30s now. Um, so I guess I guess I guess the best time best thing for him to do now is just to take some time off, um, you know, uh, reevaluate things, and he's still he's still got some you know, big marquee fights and big money fights out there available for him. But I guess he needs to figure out what he wants, you know. I mean, I, I think had he beaten Rivera, it would have been another case of here here he goes again. Faber's gonna start another win win streak, three or four wins, and he'll put himself back into title contention. But that's not the case. You know, he suffered a loss against uh, one of the, uh, the youngest and best uh, in that division in Jimmy Rivera. Uh, and some called it a passing of the torch, so to speak. Um, but, yeah, Faber, uh, he needs to figure out what he wants to do. He, he's, he's Luckily for him, over the course of his career, he's been able to um, get a lot of businesses set up outside of the sport. Uh, I'm sure he'll be fine financially. I guess he needs to figure out if he's still got the hunger, determination um, to want to train and compete with the very best. Um, and see what kind of uh, matches the UFC potentially offer him. 
Um, but overall, Sai, it was uh, a very entertaining uh, main card to UFC 203. Uh, it was a, a bit of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, at some points. Um, but it's definitely one that had plenty of talking points. And for us in the media, I guess that's, that's pretty much you know what you want. You want to come out of these cards with lots to discuss, lots to debate. Uh, and that's what we uh, that's what we got on Saturday night. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one final one final mention before we move on to the coming weekend's card. Mention for Drew Dober, who I think put on probably the most impressive performance on the prelims. Really, really put it to Jason Gonzalez. Spectacular knockout performance from him. Um, obviously, Drew Dober. We know him. Uh, he fought Nick Hine in Germany. Uh, after that fight, he ended up. Uh, meeting a girl that girl was nick hines sister uh they've since got married so we've got this weird situation where these two guys who used to fight against each other in the ufc are now brothers-in-law which is kind of cool uh but yeah he put on probably the best performance of his ufc career on saturday so all credit to drew dober uh winning that fight by knockout uh in uh, one minute 45 seconds against jason Gonzalez. That was a tough introduction to UFC life for him. Let's kick things on to this coming weekend, UFC Fight Night in Hidalgo, Texas. Um, obviously, we've had some very big, strong fight cards in recent weeks. This one, perhaps not quite as strong, but we've got in a in Dustin Poirier versus Michael Johnson, a really exciting main event. I think we've got two of uh, the lightweight divisions best stylists in terms of in terms of their striking and in terms of their, their their all action style. I can't see this fight being anything but a barn burner. I really do think it's going to be a fantastic, fantastic matchup. Um what I wanted to do, Sandu, I just wanted to get um wanted to get your take on that fight. Give us a prediction on that one. I'll chuck my two pence worth in and uh, we'll kick things on from there. But I think uh yeah we've got ourselves an exciting lightweight fight on the on the top of that fight card, Poirier versus Johnson. Yeah, stylistically, it should be a barn burner, like you said. But when it comes to records, this is quite a, an interesting fight because you've got Dustin Poirier, who essentially, since losing to Conor McGregor, has really just kicked on. Um, he, he jumped up uh, to lightweight uh, following uh, the loss to Conor McGregor at featherweight. And since then, he's kind of wrapped up a pretty decent uh, win streak um, with the likes of uh, Yancy Medeiros, Joseph Duffy, and most recently, uh, Bobby Green. Uh, in his uh, list of victims. But on the flip side, you've got Michael Johnson, who's had back-to-back losses, Si. He, uh, last time we saw him in action um, was last December, when he lost to Nate Diaz, and obviously Nate Diaz went on to give that now infamous speech where he kind of called out Conor McGregor, uh, and that was kind of uh, used heavily in all of the promotion leading up to UFC 196. So I'll be interested to see what kind of Michael Johnson we see and what kind of improvements he's made, because... You know, he a loss here, side, and he's and he'll be you know zero and three in his last three. And typically, you know, with a lot of other fighters, uh, that's a, a call to perhaps get cut. Now, I don't think if he lost, loses, he'll get cut. I think he's quite lucky and fortunate that the UFC have put him in a main event slot uh, here uh, for this fight night card. So it's it's a massive opportunity, a massive stage. But I think the fighter with the most upside to win here is Dustin Poirier. Um, looking at the actual uh, rankings. He's at number seven now, and you know the, the, the lightweight division seems to be um, a little bit jammed because you've got fighters like Khabib Nurmagomedov, who's obviously you know fought very inconsistently over the last couple of years due to injury. Um, obviously, we've got Ali Alvarez now, who's a champion, but I suppose is trying to kind of 
wrangle his way into that uh, Conor McGregor money fight, uh, so to speak, at uh, UFC 205. So I think there's plenty of time and opportunity uh, for Poirier, if he is to get a, a win uh, on the weekend, to then kick on from there and maybe get a fight with maybe the top two or three fighters in that division, which could then put him into target contention further down the road. But in regards to a pick, I think just given his, uh, his hot streak lately um, and because we haven't really seen too much of Michael Johnson since that loss to Diaz over the course of the last nine months, I'm going to go for Poirier uh, just due to his performances and his the level of consistency that he's shown over the course of the last kind of couple of years since that loss to McGregor. I have to agree with you. I have to agree with you. I think Michael, Michael Johnson, I, th- I think the most interesting thing about this fight is um, since he's moved to lightweight, Dustin Poirier has looked like a completely different animal. He was already he was always an exciting fighter who liked to stand and trade, but at lightweight he just seems to have picked up this additional power. And he, you know, he, he took Yancey Medeiros apart um, back in June. He, he knocked out Carlos Diego Ferreira, and he knocked out Bobby Green. Um, and uh, you know, these are all these are all good solid operators. And he he he's he finished them all. I mean, Joe Duffy he took to a decision. That was a great fight, and Duffy. I think gets a lot of credit uh, out of that fight, even though he got he he, uh, he ended up on the wrong end of the decision that night. But the the, the, uh, the thing I'm most interested in here is how the striking goes because Michael Johnson is an excellent technical striker. He's got great footwork. He's got good technical boxing skills, um, and he's never ever been stopped by strikes. He's only ever been stopped inside the distance by submission. So will this be? the first time you get stopped by strikes. If, if Dustin Poirier can finish Michael Johnson inside the distance by KO or TKO, I think that really does send a message to the rest of that lightweight division uh, that we've got a serious, serious contender on our hands. I believe he is a serious contender. And uh, I think if he gets past Michael Johnson on Saturday night, I, I, you know, I expect to see him in a contender fight. Um, you know, Maybe the likes of Tony Ferguson or someone like that could be next for him. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think, as you say, you know, the... Uh, the permutations are almost endless in that lightweight division. There are so many good fighters. Anyone in that top ten, you know, you could you could just put two of them against each other, and you know you're going to get a great fight. And uh, I think Poirier is moving his way up the ranks. I think he's going to win the fight. I do think he's going to win it inside the distance as well. Um, and uh, I think this could, as if he isn't already regarded as one of the hottest prospects at 155. I think this really could cement him as a bona fide contender for that lightweight title. I'm picking him to win his side of distance. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting main event in Hidalgo, Texas uh, on Saturday night, which you'll be able to watch here in the UK live on BT Sport. Check your listings. If it's the same time as usual, it will be 1am start on on BT Sport 2, main card 3am. Um, maybe an hour earlier than that because they're in Texas rather than all the way across on the West Coast. So check your list. I really hope so, Sai. I really, really hope so. <laughs> anything that gets, it's not the sexiest card in the world. Anything that get and it's on Fox as well, so you can you know we're going to get a lot of ad breaks. So uh, yeah. you know that's that that's the that's the one unfortunate thing about this. So um, but you know it is what it is. But um, it's one of those it's one of those events where. You need the coffee, you need the snacks, and you need some yep. staying power because I think once you get to that main event, I think it'll pay you back. I think I think you'll get you'll get your just reward, uh, just reward for for sticking it out all the way to the main event. So co-main event's an interesting one. Your Hall versus Derek Brunson as well. I'm looking forward to that one. But uh, that's UFC Fight Night 
in Hidalgo, Texas at the State Farm Arena, Saturday night, BT Sport 2. And uh, obviously the, uh, the prelims will be available to you, of course, and as always on UFC Fight Pass. Uh, that takes us to our, to our Q&A part of the show, which uh, yes. Sandu told me before we went live that we need to leave a little bit of breathing room for this because uh, we've, had, we've had quite a few questions this week. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I have to say, Si, I think this is becoming probably uh, my favourite part of the show. Um, I know we're only like seven or eight shows uh, in to the Brit Pack, but we, we're now starting to get, you know, overwhelmingly inundated with questions, um, especially when you and me kind of uh, throw out the call to action uh, and actually ask our fans and listeners to actually uh, to, to send us some questions. So to everyone that does, we really, really appreciate it. If we don't ask your question, it's probably because we've either already answered it um, in, in the various segments of the show um, or perhaps somebody else has asked it. But we, we appreciate you sending in the questions nonetheless. And, uh, and yeah, I think moving forward, this could probably be uh, um, a, a nice large segment of the show because there's fascinating questions out there. Uh, and this is a really good opportunity for both of us to actually kind of uh, get our opinions across as uh, and and give the fans what they want. So, to to kick us off, side uh, Christopher Smith says, "What's next for the heavyweight division?" Uh, and he thinks it should be Miocic defending his championship against Cain Velasquez. He says JDS versus Vadum two, and then he says Overeem versus Brown two. Now, for me. I agree with Miocic versus Velasquez. Uh, personally, I'd like to see Overeem versus Hunt, only because I think that would be a nice little throwback to, to the Pride days. Um, but uh, I wouldn't mind Vadum versus Rothwell either, because that was uh, the original co-main event for UFC 203 either. Um, but what do you think, Sai, for, for Miocic, for Vadum, and for Overeem? Who would you match them up with next? I think Chris has got it nailed pretty much. I think I think Cain Velasquez has got to fight for the title next. I think his loss to Fabricio Vadum in Brazil, or so, sorry, in Mexico, was pretty much an aberration. It was an anomaly. Um, he, he failed to train properly for that fight in terms of uh, preparing at altitude. It cost him. He came back at UFC 200 and fought like a man possessed against Travis Brown. You compare his performance against Travis Brown at 200 with Fabricio Verdum's performance against the Travis Brown with a busted finger uh, on Saturday night. It's chalk and cheese. It's night and day. They're, you know, they aren't comparable, you know. Uh, Velasquez is on a different planet to Verdum uh, when he's on form, in my opinion. He has to fight Stipe next, and I think that would be a, a fantastic fight. I'm looking forward already to seeing how that one will shake out. In terms of Verdum, I think he needs to drop down the ladder a little bit. Um, he needed to win impressively. And uh, really, against a guy who couldn't couldn't throw one of his hands effectively, um, he, he basically scraped through and got himself a decision. So I wouldn't mind seeing Vadum against Rothwell. I think I think I think that's a, a worthwhile matchup. I'd also chuck the name Derek Lewis into the mix as well. I want to see him against one of the top guys. Uh, I don't know who it would be. Uh, you know, maybe even someone like Mark Hunt or someone like that. You know, but I want to see Derek Lewis given a step up in competition. I know he's facing uh, Marcin Tibera next, I believe. Um, and uh, but I'll, and I think that's in um, I think that's going to be in Manila, which is interesting because 
we spoke to him in uh, in Croatia, and uh, he's not a fan of long haul travel, Derek. Um, so flying to Manila is going to be a fun one for him. But um, and Marcin Tybura, if he gets through Marcin Tybura, I want to see him in there with one of the very top guys. I think they need to start pushing some of these young guns. The other guy I want to see given a bit of a push is uh, Francis Ngannou. Uh, he he's someone who I think could really become a, really t- a sort of a terrifying force in that UFC heavyweight division. I'd like to see him uh, in there. If Overeem wants to keep fighting, maybe stick him in with the Ream. I think that would be I think that would be stylistically quite an interesting fight to watch and a really good test to see. Uh, where the ceiling is for uh, for the big Frenchman. So I think, you know, there's a few fights you can make just below championship level. You know, there's a few different permutations there. Mark Hunt needs a fight. Ben Rothwell deserves a good fight. Um, obviously, he was due to a fight this weekend and, and missed out through injury. But when, it, when we're talking about the championship, I think Chris has got it absolutely no. Cain Velasquez has to be next. Absolutely. Um, RG tweets in and says, what are, you, what are your views on Coach Edmund's motivational words during the break between rounds. Um, well, look, I'm not sure what impact, Simon, it had on Brown, but it was really bizarre. Just, just screaming at the top of his lungs and swearing and, in general, giving you know, Travis Brown a dressing down when perhaps some actual uh, fight strategy would have been better and just keeping Brown focused at the task at hand after what was a very strange, you know, event field opening round anyway. Uh, you know, Tarverdian, like I said, earlier in the show definitely isn't a fan favorite amongst the MMA community, but that's beside the point. I think Brown may take a closer look at this fight and his head coach, who he puts all of his trust in with regards to advice between rounds uh, and reassess things moving forward. At the, at the end of the day, you know, that's the fighter's responsibility. They choose where they train and who they select as their cornerman on fight night. But I mean, what were your, what was your take on, you know, coach Edmonds kind of, as uh, as Argy puts it, motivational words during the during in between the rounds. Right. Well, let me play devil's advocate just for literally a few seconds here before I tell you what I think. Everybody uh, reacts differently to motivation. Everyone has their own particular stimulus. Some people like to have an arm round the shoulder and a little bit of a little bit of molly coddling and a little bit of gentle encouragement. Other people need to have their ass kicked, and uh, it was pretty clear from the corner that. Edmund, at least, believed that Travis needed his ass kicked. And uh, verbally, he, he certainly delivered that between rounds. Given given what we saw, it clearly didn't work. Um, and, uh, <laughs> no. it, it, you know, it wasn't like he sent Travis back into action with a flea in his ear and he went and fought like a man possessed, sort of spurred on by Edmund's motivational words. Quite the opposite. That didn't happen at all. So, um, I don't know. I don't know is, is the short answer. It's It's... It's hard. It's hard to look at some of the things that Edmund does and think that he's getting the best out of his fighters that way. Um, I know he got he got um, absolutely taken apart by fans and media alike after footage of his um, his, his his advice in the corner during the uh, the Ronda Rousey loss to Holly Holm uh, was available and, and yeah he, he you know it technically. He just, you know, there, there, there was no technical coaching involved. And literally, they, he sat Travis Brown on a stool, shouted at him for a minute, and then sent him back out there again. And it was like, give him something. You know, give him, give him, even if you give him one piece of information to improve his performance from the last round. Um, it, 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 you know, everyone has their own way of doing things. And clearly, 
Edmund's way doesn't necessarily fit with most people's view of what would be considered constructive, useful, technical coaching. But um, I don't know, mate. I, <laughs> honestly, I think you could have put... Imagine Travis Brown with a, with a Mark Henry in his corner or with a, you know, a Ricky Lundell or you know, um, a, a Greg Jackson or you know, a, a John Kavanagh. They would have gone in there. They would have sat him down. They probably would have calmed him down. Yeah. They, you know, they would have got his breathing back to a good level, and then they would have imparted some sort of technical information that would have benefited him in the next round. Uh, Evan did none of that, and Travis lost. So um, it's obviously not all on the coach, but a fair, a fair portion of it is. Um, and I don't think he did his man any favors in that fight. Yeah, and like you said earlier on the show, side, I think. Uh, you know, Travis Brown, once upon a time, he looked like a scary, scary individual and someone that at one point I think we all thought was going to go all the way to heavyweight championship and perhaps be, you know, the next big superstar and, and perhaps be the next dominant champion. And ever since moving over to Glendale Fight Club and under Coach Tarverdian, he just looked like a, a shadow of his former self. And like I said, Simon, uh, it's up to the fighters. They take responsibility of where they where they um, you know, train and who their head coach is and who their cornermen are. Uh, and and we'll, I guess we'll find out. We'll, we'll find out in his next fight, you know, what happens, uh, whether he leaves, whether he stays, and whether he has um, Edmund Tarverdian in his corner. And even even if he does, we'll see if uh, Tarverdian is going to give him the same kind of Alex Ferguson blow dry treatment again, or whether he's going to maybe. You know, like you said, Simon, give him some actual technical advice that will be beneficial for him um, as he kind of comes into his second and third round and so forth. Um, Harjot Sidhu uh, tweets in and says, is Faber nearing the end or is he taking the toughest of fights to prove his worth? And then in brackets, he says, legend, in my opinion, by the way. Well, you're right, Faber is certainly a legend. Um, is he nearing the end? I think it certainly looks that way for me anyway, Sai. I mean, like I said earlier on, he's done everything that there is to do in the sport, you know, bar winning a championship in the UFC. And now he's coming off back-to-back losses, which is the very first time that's happened to him in his long career. So he may need to reevaluate things. Like I said, take some time off, let his body recover. Uh, and believe you me, he probably will need some recovery after those leg kicks thrown by Rivera. Um, and, and see if he wants a couple of more fights, you know. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, there's still some big marquee fights available to him should he wish to continue. Off the top of my head, uh, the TJ Dillashaw fight has got money written all over it. Uh, I know you, Simon, you've wanted to see him fight Brad Pickett for a while. Um, so let's see. But in terms of answering the question, yes, in my opinion, he is nearing the end of his illustrious career. Just not sure he's the type to you know, want to be a... Uh, or hold the title of gatekeeper, so to speak. What do you think, Sai? Yeah, I think when people say is is he finished and all the rest of it, he's still he's still a top level fighter. Let's not let's not make any bones about this. He's still he's still comfortably one of the top ten in that division. I don't think there's any argument there. The question is, um, given that he's now beginning to lose to the very top guys in the division, whereas he was one of those guys for a very long time, he's now beginning to lose to these guys. The question for Uriah Faber is, is he going to be happy campaigning as a gatekeeper or in the middle of that top 10 pack uh, and and maybe not getting the bigger fights anymore? Um, You know, he's a draw. I said, I think on last week's show, I'd like to see him use on international shows more because he's, he's one of these people. He comes across great in interviews. 
He's he's a great character. He's a great talker. He's got an awful amount of respect in the MMA world for his accomplishments. And, uh, you know, he's a smart guy. He would be a great fighting ambassador for the UFC. And I'm slightly surprised that they haven't used him internationally more. I think he fought in Manila against Frankie Edgar a while back. But I can't remember him going overseas too many other times under the UFC banner. I'd love to see him fight in Europe. But as you say, the Brad Pickett fight, I think, would be... Would be a great a great fight for certainly for the fans over on this side of the pond, um, but in terms of his championship uh, threat, I think that might be on the wane now. So, question for him is: Is he happy to just continue fighting and picking up a paycheck as one of the top ten, or is he one of these guys who, once he realises that he can't win the title anymore, he's going to just uh, hang his gloves up and go out? Go out on his shield. He's a smart guy, Uriah Faber. Um, as, uh, as I think you said, he's 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 done very well with some businesses outside of the octagon. He's a hugely respected guy uh, within the sport, um, and I'm sure he'll be successful whatever he turns his hand to after fighting, whether he stays within the sport uh, as a pundit or as a coach, uh, or whether he turns his hand to something else completely different. But um, yeah, that's the question for him. Does he want to keep fighting as a as a gatekeeper in the top ten? I don't know. I think if there's big fights out there for him, you can get a couple of decent name fights out there. Maybe travel a little bit with the UFC, then maybe hang him up after that. I don't think. I think maybe three, four fights. Uh, we might, you know, we might see him looking to make a decision after that. Absolutely. Uh, Luke tweets in and says, "Hi, I would like to ask what you think is next for Nick Diaz, and do you see Ronda fighting for the title on her return?" Well, for the first part of the question, for Nick Diaz, I think there's an absolute slew of options on the table. Um, there's rematches with GSP and Carlos Condit. Uh, Matt Brown has been a fight that fans have wanted to see, um, as is Robbie Lawler, another rematch. Uh, Michael Bisping has called a f- for a fight with Nick Diaz. Tyron Woodley wants him. Chael Sonnen has called out Nick Diaz. The list just goes on and on. Personally, I'd like to see... Um, the Robbie Lawler fight. Um, you know, Diaz hasn't won a fight since BJ Penn at UFC 137 back in October of 2011. That's cl- coming up to five years, Simon. And I was at that fight. I was at the Mandalay Bay for UFC 137, BJ Penn versus Nick Diaz. And, and I can't believe it's been that long ago. I was even covering the sport back then, Simon. That's how long it was. I think, I think Lawler is the fight to go here. It's certainly in the realm of a winnable fight for Nick Diaz. Um, stylistically, it would get the fans going. It's a rematch. Uh, and, and and interesting to note that, you know, Lawler just pulled out of the Cerrone fight at UFC 205, which makes me think that perhaps the UFC are changing things around and maybe perhaps they might be putting him together with Diaz, uh, which would suck to hear if you're Don Cerrone as I know he was uh, literally heartbroken to hear that that fight was falling apart. But if you're going to put, if you've got a list, like a, and I listed there, a bunch of fights for Nick Diaz, for me, the Robbie Lawler rematch is right on the top of my list. What's your thoughts on that, Si? Well, you mentioned, you mentioned the Cerrone-Lawler uh, thing. From my understanding, Lawler told Cerrone, he went and met him personally, um, and uh, met him face-to-face and said, look, I've come to meet you personally because I want to tell you the fight's off. Um, and it sounds like he was still having some problems with his head. Uh, oh, okay. so I think there might be some sort of post-concussion stuff going on there so so I don't know whether there's any of that happening but I think he just needed to rest himself a little bit longer that that was the uh, the gist of what 
of what Cerrone said. Um, so, given that that might take uh, Lawler out of the picture potentially, because that would, I think, be most people's number one. Mm. Cerrone himself wouldn't be a terrible fight to watch. I think that would, stylistically would be a lot of fun. I do think Good Nick. Call. I think I think Nick would be. I think he'd have a, a reasonable size advantage in that fight. But I mean, you know, Cerrone at one seventies looked excellent. So stylistically, two guys who like to stand and bang. I think that would be a cracking fight, and uh, I wouldn't mind seeing that at all. The other fight I would absolutely love to see is the Matt Brown fight. Um, I think Matt Brown always always brings it. I think that would be a great fight to watch. Let me chuck another one in the mix. Tim, the, Tim the Dirty Bird means would be, I think, Ooh, nice. I think that would be a fantastic, stylistically, Tim Means and Nick Diaz, I think they'd take the roof off the place. I really do. I think Means obviously isn't considered by many as a, as a sort of a top three, top four guy, but he's a nasty fighter. I think, I think stylistically him, and Diaz would be superb. Um, the question is, who does Diaz want? Because I think you know the the, uh, the Diaz brothers are, have shown uh, over the last few months or so. You know they're they're pretty strong negotiators these days, and uh, I think Nick will want a bit of, a, a, as much name recognition on the opposite side of the cage to him when he steps in there for his uh, for his comeback. So maybe Donald Cerrone might be the one uh, to get that done. I think I think we'd have some interesting. Interesting chat between the pair of them during fight week, and I think when the cage door shuts, we'd get an absolute cracker of a fight. So I'll, I'll, I'll stick my I'll stick my money down and say let's have Donald Cowboy Cerrone versus versus Nick Diaz. That would be a belter. I like where your heads at, Sai. I love that. I think if uh, yeah, if the Robbie Lawler fight's not going to happen, um, scratch everything else that I mentioned. Scratch that list. Let's get uh, Cerrone, Nick Diaz as a part of that UFC two two hundred five offering in New York. I mean, I can't imagine you'd want to have a, a debut in Madison Square Garden without a Diaz brother on it. Um, but uh, but Luke's second part of his question, Simon asks if uh, if we see Ronda fighting for a title on her return, and I think I think that's the way to go. I mean, you you know this build up that that's been now literally coming up to a year of of Ronda Rousey uh, kind of inactivity in the sport and and for the UFC. The, the the longer it kind of builds, the the higher the anticipation of her of her return. And I think um, Ronda Rousey's return, which now looks like it'll most likely take place uh, in in 2017, or either at the end of this year on the New Year's Eve card, or well into 2017, it will no doubt be one of the biggest pay-per-view offerings that the UFC have ever had. Uh, Dana White's gone on the record. But I mean, to be fair, he is a promoter, so I'm sure he would he would say this that it'll probably break all records. Um, but it's got to be a title fight, regardless of how long she takes um, on her return. She, she's got to fight for the title. She was undefeated. She's only lost once, and that was in a title fight. Um, and I think she's done enough, not just uh, in the UFC, but for for, for women's uh, MMA in general, um, to deserve a, a title shot on her return. Would you agree with that, Sly? I think so, yeah. I mean, I also think that they've got little option but to do that, because... There is always the danger that if you put her in a, a fight with a contender and she loses, then you, you know your golden goose is gone at that point. So I think mm. to, to to bring her back and not put her in a title fight uh, would be an incredibly risky strategy, unless it was against someone like Cyborg, where you could do that as a separate fight, as a showcase fight, and it would it would deliver everything you needed. And if she lost in that fight, 
at a catch weight that wouldn't necessarily affect the championship picture or her ability to then go and fight for the title further down the line. So um, I think they've got to. I think I think there's there's good fights for her. You know, Juliana Pena I think would be a good fight for her. I think you know a rematch with Katzingano would be interesting. I think obviously there's the Misha rivalry that could easily be rekindled, um, but obviously she wants the championship, um, and if she's going to fight Amanda Nunes, I think I think that's an incredibly dangerous fight to come back for. Um, mm. I'd almost be tempted to sit and wait and see how Amanda Nunes gets on in her next title defense, um, and if she looks as good in an, in her first title defense as she did against Misha Tate, then maybe I'd look to go for. Uh, a, a, perhaps a bigger name, but not a championship fight. Um, and then if, if she gets through that, then fight for a title. But again, that is so, so risky. So it's balancing up the need to fight for gold and or, or to be in a, what you would call a big money fight. I mean, any fight that runs in is going to be a money fight. But um, yeah, I'm fascinated to see, A, if she even comes back, um, and B, if she does, who it will be against. I'll tell you what would be very interesting, um, and maybe I'll try and find this out before the next show. Uh, try and find a bookmaker who will give me odds on who will make their comeback first, whether it's Ronda Rousey or George St. Pierre. Because um, I don't know. I don't know. I think we'll see GSP before we see Ronda. What do you reckon? Well, I think one piece of information that came out over the course of the last week since we last uh, recorded the show, Simon is that Ronda Rousey um, got tested by USADA, and that's the first time she's had a test in around six months. So I know that GSP is also currently in the USADA testing pool, so he's getting tested. And for him, it's probably um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a better indication that he might be coming back soon because because of his long hiatus, he was on an older UFC contract, and you've got to be sort of uh, in the USADA testing pool for about four months uh, before you can actually compete and fight for the UFC again. Um, so if that's an indication of, of them both returning pretty soon, um, that, that that's something that maybe some people can kind of, you know, take with a pinch of salt. But if, if I'm going to put my money on someone returning before the other person, I'd put my money on GSP um, only because they've got that Toronto card they still haven't announced a main event for that Toronto card on December 10th. And, uh, and I mean, I don't think you can go to Canada. They've just lost Rory McDonald to Bellator, so, you know. Um, the only other, you know, Canadian star you've got um, is George St. Pierre. Now, they could give that Toronto card and stack it with other marquee fighters. And, you know, we, they've gone there before with uh, Alexander Gustafsson and John Jones. But right now, John Jones is, you know, technically out of the picture until we find out otherwise. Um, but yeah, if I'm going to put my money on someone, and if you, if you get uh, some odds back from the bookmakers, let me know because I'd put my I'd put my money on GSP. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I tend to agree with you. It's uh, it's certainly going to make things a lot more interesting if the pair of them come back. You think you've got Conor McGregor doing incredible business at the box office. Nate Diaz is a bona fide superstar now. His brother's on the comeback trail. He's every bit the star as well. Throw GSP in the mix. Throw Ronda Rousey in the mix. And uh, all of a sudden, the new owners of the UFC uh, are going to start looking at their investment and start thinking, right, we can make some serious gains right now. So, um, you know, we sport like this needs stars, and uh, the thought of these guys all coming back to uh, coming back to the mothership, so to speak, uh, it's going to make for a very exciting end to 2016. And 
hopefully a very exciting 2017. Absolutely. Hendo, and it's not Dan Henderson, but uh, I think his uh, Twitter handle is Ian Hendo. But anyway, Hendo uh, tweets in and says, uh, with Jojo Calderwood uh, losing to a smaller woman, is there any merit in her going up in weight to 125, 135? We, we briefly spoke about this earlier on, Sai. Ideally, she should be fighting at 125 pounds, and it's just unfortunate for her and for other women, both in the bantamweight and strawweight division, that the option just doesn't currently exist right now. And it, and it may not exist for another year or two. I think for Calderwood, she just needs to work on her wrestling, her takedown defense, her ground game. We know she's a good striker and can handle herself on, on her feet. It's just when she's taken down... That's where the problems start to arise. And when you come up against a short, stocky fighter like Andrade, who has that lower center of gravity, you just know at some point that double leg is coming. Um, but to answer the question, yes, of course, you know, she should be fighting at 125. Um, maybe the UFC can put together a few more uh, one-off 125 fights. They can certainly do that. They don't need a division to give her the fights for the time being and uh, and just try and let her kind of develop and you know round out her skill set. If they can do that for her, fantastic. Um, but but here's hoping that the uh, the 125 division is created sooner rather than later, not just for Joanne Calderwood, but for other fighters as well. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think Joanne Calderwood at 125 is is uh, is going to be much happier, uh, much happier at the weight class. I know I spoke to her before the fights and um, this, this this past week, and uh, obviously she said that 115 was the place for her right now, which is kind of a no brainer, isn't it? Because there isn't a 125 pound division, so. Um, I don't know when we're going to see one. I think, you know, uh, when I was over in um, in Rotterdam, both me and, and John Morgan asked around a bit uh, about this potential for a 125-pound division, and we both got pretty much the same response that, um, you know, they're aware of it, but it's not something that's in their immediate plans right now. So um, I don't think we're going to see anything in the, in, in the near future. So really, it's, uh, it's just down for, for JoJo to campaign at 115. Um, as for losing to a smaller woman, uh, Jessica Andrade is not your average small strawweight. She's incredibly powerful. And of course, she's moved down from, from bantamweight. So I think that was only her second fight at 115. She absolutely destroyed Jessica Penne uh, in her first fight at 115. Looked very impressive again against, uh, against Joanne Calderwood on Saturday. And I don't. Th- I think if she's. You know. I think she's probably one win away, maybe, from being considered as a potential threat to uh, Ioanni and Jacek. And she'd certainly pose a very different threat to anybody else in that division. Um, she'd certainly be the most aggressive challenger uh, available to uh, to take on Joanna Champion. So, um, yeah, interesting to see who she fights next. Maybe someone like Rose Namajunas might be uh, might be uh, lined up. I think. I think that would be very interesting because Rose is obviously right there. And she's going to need a fight. So uh, maybe maybe Andrade is, is the one. But the fight I would love to see. Um, I don't know if I'd ever make it. I tweeted it afterwards and it got it got a few a few likes and a few comments. Um, I'd love to see Andrade take on Claudia Gadalia. I think that would be that would be a fantastic matchup. Um, and uh, I don't know how long the fight would last, but it would be high paced, aggressive, and exciting for as long as it does. I think that would be great. But as as for Jojo, I think she's just got to get back to the drawing board and and come again um, and uh, just keep plugging away at 115 because uh, you're only one or two wins away from being considered a title threat um, when you're sitting in that top 10. Uh, but when 125 comes, 
then uh, absolutely she should move up to 125 and I think she'd be a serious threat in that division. Graham Hughes tweets in and says, do you guys think Pimblet will now get the call from the UFC? So outside of the UFC this weekend, there was a lot of, uh, it, was, it was a pretty big combat sports action-packed weekend. You referenced the Kel Brook fight versus Triple G of the weekend side. Uh, there was also Chai Lewis Parry um, had another a big win. Um, for glory um, he's someone that everyone should keep an eye on uh, a British heavyweight um, who's expressed his desire uh, to transition into MMA full time and, and I, I mentioned I think last week or the week before that um, he's already got a dialogue uh, going with the UFC and he's currently training um, with the likes of Daniel Cormier and Kane Velasquez at the American Kickboxing Academy um, but close to home over the weekend uh, Cage Warriors um, had their event in Liverpool with uh, Pimblet now becoming their featherweight champion. Simon, what can I say? He's got that it factor about him, hasn't he? Um, and the UFC could certainly use him for, for maybe the their upcoming Belfast card or for future European cards, especially those of them that are going to take place in the UK. He's 12-1. and 1. He's a champion, and I think the time is perfect. What do you think, Si? Totally agree. He's got He's got the lot, hasn't he? I mean, he's... He's, uh, he's on this fantastic win streak at the moment. I think it's eight fights in a row, and I think most of those have come inside a distance. I think six or seven of those come inside a distance. But he's, he's got the personality on the microphone. Um, he's, got, he's, he's just got that aura about him that just says star. And, uh, you know, from the UK perspective, we need people like that in the UFC. He's only young, um, but he's progressing at such a rate that it's becoming very, very hard to deny uh, that guy he shot in the UFC, get him in there, get him in there, give him the opportunity and see how he does. I mean, I think he's going to, he's going to bring eyeballs to the sport. I think he's got a whole city behind him and uh, I'm very excited to see just what the ceiling is for, uh, for Paddy the Baddy Pimblet. I think, I think uh, he could be the closest thing we have uh, to a, to a Conor McGregor-esque personality in the UFC. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. He's got, he, uh, before his fight, Paddy Power, the uh, the bookmakers over here in uh, in, in fact they're an Irish bookmaker, um, but they they do big business here in the UK as well. Uh, they struck a, a charity bet with Paddy Pimlet, that, um, but I think they've given him I think it's like seven to one or something like that, um, a two thousand pound bet on Paddy beat, fighting and beating Conor McGregor before twenty twenty. Uh, and if he wins, then he's going to stand to win. I think. I think it's ten grand. So I think. I think it's a four to one bet. So it's. It's. Um, it's going to be. It's going to be ten grand for his chosen charity, which is Fight for Autism, which is. Which is great. Um, you know, for for that, it's nice PR for for the bookmakers, obviously. But um, you know, it's it's also nice to bring a bit of attention to to a charity like that as well. So um, I thought. I thought that was a nice little sideline going into the fight. He put in a great performance, great knockout. Uh, sorry, TKO. And uh, yeah, get get him in there. Let's see. Let's see Paddy Pimlet in the UFC. I think he deserves his shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony Quaint, our friend in the media from Woe TV, uh, tweets in and says, "People talking about Pettis versus Aldo. What about Pettis versus Edgar for New York? Um, I think regardless of what happens with McGregor." whether he fights Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight championship or if he fights Aldo for the, federal, for the unification bout, 
for the for the featherweight championship. I'm just not in favor of Anthony Pettis getting a title shot after just one fight and one win at 145 pounds. I think Max Holloway is is ahead of him and should get Aldo if McGregor fights Alvarez. Um, and the fight personally that I really want to see is Pettis versus Edgar. I think that'll give Pettis a chance to get a second fight at featherweight under his belt so that he can just get used to uh, the weight class a little bit better. And to be honest with you, if you're going to drop down to featherweight and fight for, for the title, you've got to fight someone who's got the name value uh, like Frankie Edgar. Uh, who, you know, you beat Frankie Edgar, by all means, go and fight for the title. But until you do that, uh, I think you're one or two steps away. I mean, what do you think, Sai? Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. By the way, did you see Anthony Pettis on the telly at the weekend? Uh, it was him and Tyron Woodley, and they were doing an interview. And Pettis was the bigger man on screen right then. Everyone was going, have you seen the size of Anthony Pettis? Um, he's he's a he was a big big unit this past weekend. So and, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't you know I'm not, I'm not saying he's massively out of shape. That's a bit rich coming from me. But you know he 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 was way 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 bigger than you would expect him to look. Bigger than Tyron Woodley. Um, so so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, I think I think the fight with Edgar makes all all sorts of sense. Edgar needs a good big name opponent. Um, having come in, uh, come off that that defeat to to Jose Aldo, uh, I think Pettis needs a big name opponent to further establish himself in that featherweight division. As you say, if anyone other than Max Holloway gets a shot at Jose Aldo, then it's a travesty, in my opinion. Max Holloway absolutely deserves to be fighting Jose Aldo next. I hope that's the fight that they make. Um, but yeah, I think I think Anthony Pettis versus um, versus Frankie Edgar is is an absolute slam dunk. They have to make that fight. It makes complete sense. Um, and was that was a fight that Tony suggested, yeah? That was, yeah. Well, he, he spot Tony on. was basically he spot on. Tony basically says, um, you know, what about Pettis versus Edgar uh, for New York? Um, and you know, yeah, like I said, that's that's the fight that I um, tweeted the minute Pettis has won his uh, featherweight debut. I think that's a fight that makes sense. It gives Edgar uh, an opportunity to fight on the New York card, which I know. Uh, means a lot to him, and it gives him um, a big value, big name opponent in Pettis, uh, where you know a win for Edgar over Pettis again just puts him right back in the mix. So, so yeah, I agree with that as well. Perfect. Yeah, I, I, th- I think we're all in agreement, which is not that interesting for a podcast. But there you go. <laughs> I think I think it, it makes that much sense, doesn't it? It makes that much sense. Him versus Edgar, winner of that is either in contention for a title fight or is going to be in a number one contender fight. So, um, and it's one of those former champion versus versus former champion. Both those guys held the UFC lightweight belt uh, at various stages in their career. Uh, never fought before. Um, it's one of those fights where people who've been following the UFC for any length of time, they're going to get excited about that fight. So uh, yeah, get it booked. Absolutely. Final question coming in from Fraser Smith. Who would you like to see Jimmy Rivera fight next? I mean, we talked about it earlier on, side. This this fight and this win over the weekend against Uriah Faber, I mean, looking at the rankings as I am right now, uh, heading, and which, which haven't been updated um, as of recording of this podcast, Rivera is ranked number 12. Um, you know, Ahead of him, you've got Eddie Wineland, Thomas Almeida, John Dodson, Michael McDonald. I think he'll skip past all of them, to be fair. That win over Faber, I think, will break him into, I'd say, the top six, top seven. And I, and then you've got some really meaty uh, fighters. And I think, at the moment, 
Number seven ranked Aljamain Sterling. That would be a cracking fight. Um, but the thing is, with Rivera, um, he's, and I can't remember the exact specifics of the injury, but he's got a situation, and I don't know if it was uh, an orbital injury or um, a retina injury. Maybe, Simon, if you can re remember. I know he's dealing with some, with, a, with an eye-related injury coming out of his fight with uh, Uriah Faber, so he might be out for some time. But in regards to matchmaking, I wouldn't mind seeing him versus Aljamain Sterling. What do you think, Si? Sterling would be a great fight. And again, I know we keep banging on about this New York card, but Aljamain Sterling versus Jimmy Rivera, two guys who... Uh, come from that part of America, you know, they're, 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 they're nearby. Both of those guys would have huge support. That would be a good, a good matchup to make. If, if you're Jimmy Rivera's management, however, the fight that I would be looking for, I'd be looking for him to fight the highest possible ranked opponent that you can, uh, while also being realistic. And I'm looking at these rankings and Rafael Sunsau might not be a terrible, uh, matchup mm -hmm. for him. I think, I think he's ranked third. Um, he's been in there with some good guys. Obviously, he's coming off a loss to TJ Dillashaw at UFC 200, but he went the distance with Dillashaw, um, and he remains one of the one of the, the toughest campaigners in that 135 pound division. I think with the likes of Sterling and Caraway, that's a fight that people have talked about for a while. Um, there's also the potential of Thomas Almeida, who is drop way down the rankings, um, giving you an idea of the quality of this division. He's had one loss, and all of a sudden, he's almost fallen off the rankings. He's 10th. He's so, you know, I think he's certainly got a say in that division, and I think he'll come again for sure. And he will be, he will fight for a world title uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the next year or two. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, but, yeah, I think Jimmy Rivera versus Rafael Asuncao, from a, from a business point of view, if you're uh, Jimmy Rivera's management... That would be the one I would push for. But uh, a local derby versus Aljamain Sterling would be interesting. I don't know what the relationship is between those two guys. Um, they both seem pretty uh, amiable, affable guys. I don't know whether there's any kind of gym rivalry or anything like that. So, um, But yeah, that would be an interesting one if they can get it on the New York card. But it looks like, as you say, Jimmy's got an eye injury. I don't know what it, exactly what the eye injury is, other than he took a nasty poke in the eye. So you just hope that it isn't anything lasting um, and that whatever time it takes for him to get it sorted and to just rest it, I don't know whether he's got a torn cornea or whether there's something more serious involved there. But um, yeah, I think, you know, we need to, when it comes to, you know, your, uh, your eyesight, you can't, you can't be, uh, you can't be too careful. So hopefully Jimmy, Jimmy will get the all clear. Everything will be okay for him soon. Um, I think the fight I'd push for is a sunset. That would be the one I'd go for. Good shout. Uh, that's a wrap, Si. That are, that's all the questions we had this week. And, and again, really want to give a, a shout out and thank you to everyone uh, who submitted the questions. Like I said, if if, uh, if I didn't get to read out your question, um, it's probably because we, we've already addressed it uh, in the show at some point um, or was already asked by somebody else. But appreciate you tweeting in nonetheless. Thank you very much. Great stuff. You can send us your questions uh to either one of us on Twitter at Sandu MMA at Simon Head, or you can send it, of course, to our to our show account, which is at the Brit Pack MMA. Um, any suggestions for the show? Any feedback for the show? Please do feel free to uh, to ping us ping us your feedback via via a tweet. Um, we're on iTunes. Please subscribe to us on iTunes if you uh, if you are an iTunes user. We're available on Acast. We're available on SoundCloud, and we are also available on Stitcher 
main place to go uh, to stream the show from your from your computer, from your phone. Probably the easiest place to go is SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash The Brit Pack. Uh, you'll get all all our back issues are on there as well. So, uh, so if you want to hear just how bad we were on show one, please do feel free to go back and have a listen. And uh, hopefully you'll see a little bit of progress from then to now, um, eight shows in. Thank you to everyone for listening. Um, we've got UFC Fight Night in Hidalgo, Texas this weekend. Don't forget, tweet us. Let us know how you watch the uh, how, how you cope with these late UFC nights, and uh, let us know whether you've got any special plans for the upcoming UFC 204 event in Manchester, which of course is going to be held in the middle of the night. That pretty much wraps things up for us on this week's show. Enjoy the fights next weekend, and we will speak to you next Monday. Oh, 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 o